Hello, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with ADHD expert, Dr. Stephen Ferrone. Stephen is a distinguished professor in the Department of Psychiatry at SUNY Upstate Medical University, a senior scientific advisor to the research program Pediatric Psychopharmacology at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. He's an author on over a thousand journal articles, editorials, chapters, and books, the editor for the journal Neuropsychiatric Genetic, and the program director of the educational website ADHDinadults.com. Stephen is president of the World Federation of ADHD and was a founding board member for the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders. He has also been inducted into the Chad Hall of Fame in recognition of outstanding achievement in medicine and education research on attention disorders. His other honors include the SUNY Upstate President's Award for Excellence and Leadership in Research, the Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Scholarship and Creative Activities from the State University of New York, and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society of Psychiatric Genetics. One of my main takeaways from my conversation with Stephen was that the lay public's narrative of ADHD can be very different from that of the professional community. For example, there seems to be a lot of fear associated with the stimulant treatments of ADHD from parents of children with ADHD and adults with ADHD. After my discussion with Dr. Ferrone, I felt that a lot of this fear is misguided. ADHD can cause some serious problems in school and in one's personal life. And the bottom line is that the medications that we have are by far the most powerful tool to address these issues. As Stephen points out, fearing adverse outcomes from stimulant medications must be balanced with consideration of the adverse outcomes from inaction or from focusing on weaker approaches. Moreover, behavioral interventions have their place, but it is often the case that medication might be needed first to allow for the behavioral interventions to be applied in the first place. My conversation with Stephen revealed that some of my own thoughts on ADHD were in reality myths. If you have ADHD or have children diagnosed with ADHD, this discussion should help to clarify some ideas and give you a framework for understanding how ADHD manifests and how it can be treated. Enjoy. Okay, today I am joined by Dr. Stephen Ferrone. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Happy to be here, Ryan. So today we're going to be talking all about ADD or ADHD. Uh, why don't we just start by uh, talking about uh, the defining symptoms of someone that is diagnosed with ADD or ADHD? That is a great question, right? And it's really very important because people need to differentiate what are the defining symptoms and then what are other problems people may have. Because sometimes people hear, oh, people with ADHD have anxiety and they're anxious and they think they have ADHD, but they don't have the defining symptoms. So I'm glad you asked that question. Defining symptoms are pretty straightforward. There's three categories. Uh, there's inattentive symptoms. Uh, people get distracted easily. They, they Partly it's not being able to organize their lives because they can't pay attention to this or that. Hyperactivity, most prominent in young kids, they kind of run around like they have a motor inside of them, climbing on furniture, very, very active. Uh, it's less so for adults and older adolescents. They tend to be more maybe fidgety or uncomfortable in situations where they have to stay seated. And then the last category is impulsivity. Uh, that's acting without thinking. Uh, if you're a little kid and you're chasing a ball, you might run into the street to chase the ball without looking for cars. If you're an adult, you might impulsively 
break into a conversation without waiting for your appropriate uh, turn. Uh, so these three symptoms, I'm sorry, these, these, t- these three classes are actually in the diagnostic manual turned into two sets of symptoms, the inattentive symptoms and hyperactive impulsive symptoms. And to meet criteria for ADHD, you have to have either six of nine inattentive symptoms, six of nine hyperactive impulsive symptoms, or you could of course have both sets of symptoms as well. Mm-hmm. Now, would you say that there is sort of an essence of the ADD symptoms? I've heard sort of working memory is sort of implicated in sort of something that explains why yeah. individuals could- with ADD are impulsive. Um, I've heard that uh, time management is sort of this, I'm, I'm trying to get it sort of like a unifying principle that describes the experience yeah. of somebody with ADD. That's a really, okay. So let me, um, I'll get to that. I, one thing I should point out about the symptoms, when we in the mental health field talk about symptoms, we're talking about behaviors that lead to impairments in real life. So it's not simply somebody's fidgeting a lot. If it, if it doesn't affect them in their real life, it's not a symptom. It's just something that they do. So in, for to be diagnosed with ADHD, you have to have symptoms that cause real life problems. And by the way, those symptoms have to have started before the age of 12 to meet the criteria. You have raised the point about what causes these symptoms. Is there one central organizing theme that we can put around that? Lots of things have been proposed. Uh, you mentioned working memory. Uh, disinhibition is another one. Uh, I'd like to, when I think when I think about trying to help people with ADHD understand the central thematic nature of their symptoms, I, I like to appeal to Russ Barkley's concept of um, inability to self-regulate behavior, cognition, and, and emotion. At, at its core, ADHD is a problem of self-regulation. Now, if you think about it, as little children, we all have trouble regulating our behaviors. In fact, our parents have to tell us, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Our parents are essentially in control of us. As we get older, we learn to self-regulate. We stop doing things that little kids do. We inhibit our behaviors in situations where it should be inhibited. We express ourselves appropriately when we should express ourselves. People with ADHD don't develop at the same rate this ability to self-regulate. Um, And this is why when we talk about the symptoms of the disorder, we say that the symptoms are uh, inappropriate for the person's age. So at age two, running around and climbing on furniture is pretty normal. And defining that as being atypical is something only a trained person can do. But but the sense of dysregulation is, I think, the key, uh, a key way to think about ADHD. And another, and adding to that, it's, um, you have to remember that the environment also imposes upon us uh, the need to self-regulate. And different environments do that differently. If we're just lying on the beach, let's say, there's not much to do. Um, there's, no, there's no real um, pressure to self-regulate. But if we're sitting in a the classroom, there are a lot of pressures to self-regulate. So there's also this interaction between your ability to self-regulate and what the demands are in the environment. I see. So I'd like to talk a little bit about something that you just mentioned, which is um, there has to be some sort of impairment like that. That is, it seems as though that's one of the differentiators between what you might call n- normal inattentiveness versus being diagnosed with ADD. But as as soon as I hear impairment, I start thinking, well, Im- impairment is part on the individual, but can't you attribute some of the impairment in quotations to the environment? So for example, you know, if trouble, if, if, a, if somebody with ADD is having trouble at home or school, what role does the environment play in terms of, you know, what happens if, if, if the expectations are too high uh, for <laughs> that environment? I mean, we have, we, we expect, children to sort of sit in desks quietly for eight hours a day. I mean, I feel like that's too much for a normal brain, let alone an ADD brain. Um, how do you look at, uh, at at this conversation around, well, society or our norms, our institutions need to be more flexible 
uh, with respect to our discussion around individuals with ADD? Well, uh, relevant to your question, uh, I'll first point out that to be diagnosed with ADHD, the problems you experience, the symptoms you experience have to be evident in more than one setting. So if they only occur in school or only occur at home, it's not ADHD. It's a problem with that environment. No question about that. Uh, that's really important. It's that ADHD is not situational. Doesn't it just happen when you're with your wife <laughs> or when you're with your parents? Um, it expresses itself in multiple situations, and, that, and that's a requirement. You, your question also raises the concept of accommodations. What degree should schools or society in general accommodate to people with ADHD or people with other um, mental health problems? I, I think accommodation is very important. I mean, if you consider uh, when I was young, uh, society did not accommodate well to people who had to use wheelchairs to get around. And those people had much less ability to be out in, in public. Nowadays, uh, because of laws, because of people realizing we need to accommodate to physical disabilities, uh, people who have to use wheelchairs can get around in, um, in, in many settings. Of course, the question becomes, how much does one accommodate and in what settings? And that leads to a lot of more complex issues. Uh, it also raises issues for schools in terms of what they can afford in terms of funding, because if accommodations require, for example, smaller classrooms or special teachers, there's a price tag associated with that. So society has to decide, you know, are we going to pay the price? Now, I think we should, but uh, I don't make those rules, fortunately. Right. Uh, so let's jump into the the causes of ADHD, or so, sorry, I keep, I keep going back between ADHD and ADD. Well, well let's uh, let's stop there for just a minute because that confuses some people. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why these two terms are around is because in the early 1980s, when the we came up with the really first good diagnostic criteria, the disorder was called attention deficit disorder with or without hyperactivity. So with ADD with or without hyperactivity, and it became known as ADD. And then fast forward. Uh, in a later revision of the diagnostic manual, they decided to call it attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. So today, the correct name is ADHD, although we hear ADD used all the time, uh, particularly in the popular press and the internet. So it, that's a, a great comment. It strikes me that there has been a lot of changes in terms of the diagnostic criteria, the language around ADHD. Uh, could you highlight some of the major changes that have been implemented with respect to the diagnostic criteria? Are, are there some things that are just plain, we used to do it this, we used to understand it this way, and we've completely shifted our understanding? Uh, are there any big things that we would be interested in learning? In, with that respect? The only really big shift occurred in the early 1980s when diagnostic manual, the whole diagnostic manual changed where the, the diagnoses were vaguely described. It was, there wasn't detailed symptoms as I described, detailed criteria. In the 80s, it was a total, it, it, it was not so much that we changed who was diagnosed with ADHD, but we did a much better job in terms of improving the validity of those diagnoses. I'm saying we, I didn't do it, but we as a field did that. Um, since then, changes have been relatively minor with the exception of the new uh, fifth edition of a diagnostic manual in, in the United States, which uh, particularly changed a little bit how we diagnose ADHD in adults. Made it a little bit easier so that an adult with ADHD only needs to meet five symptom criteria in a category as opposed to meeting six for children. And that's because myself and others have found that with age, the symptoms of ADHD tend to attenuate, even though they can still be very impairing. That's That was really one major change in the DSM. And the other major change was that the DSM recognized that the, and by the way, DSM is short for Diagnostic Manual. Um, the DSM recognized that the symptoms in adults are sometimes expressed differently. So as I said before, instead of being frankly hyperactive and running around, adults can be uncomfortable in situations requiring uh, that they sit still. Okay. Now, it seems as though that there is both a genetic component and an environmental component to that that contribute to the onset of ADHD symptoms. Um, could you just sort of broadly talk about how we should understand the dynamic between the genetic influence and the environment? Sure, absolutely. Uh, first important fact we know from 
decades of twin studies, there are over 30 now, I think, uh, that the heritability of ADHD is about 75 to 80%. What that means is that we can explain 75%, 80% of ADHD in the population by genetic factors. That's, uh, that's very clear. Uh, and we, we know to some degree what those, uh, we know a little bit, I should say, about what those genes are. And that's, that's, that's we could do a whole podcast on that. Mm-hmm. The environment has a smaller role and the, env- the environmental, uh, r- environmental risks have been much more difficult to establish with certainty. And that has to do with some technical issues of how one designs research projects. Uh, genes are very well behaved. It's very easy to take a DNA sample from somebody, assay their genes, and uh, uh, understand that there's causality. The environment is much more difficult. Uh, so there are, not, there are really, in my view, only two environmental uh, risks that are clear causes of ADHD. One of them happens to be severe traumatic brain injury. Brain injury. Uh, that can lead to, that's a rare case, a rare, a rare cause of ADHD. And the other uh, are extreme, is extreme deprivation early in life, uh, which was seen in some very elegant studies in orphan, orphanages in Romania, where kids were just left without much food, without much care. And many of them developed ADHD and other problems later on in life. But in addition to that, there are a lot of, we call them environmental correlates. If people look at the international consensus statement on ADHD, we talk about environmental correlates. There are various exposures during pregnancy from other smokes, for example, for kids more likely to have ADHD. But we don't call that a cause yet because in fact, for smoking, what's, what my colleagues have discovered is that turns out that mothers who smoke are more likely to have ADHD than mothers who don't smoke. And so what we thought was an environmental cause was actually a genetic cause because right. we got fooled by what's called a confound. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a lot to learn about the environment uh, and that is, I think the next decade of work is gonna hopefully uh, move us more strongly in that direction. Now, my subjective feeling is that there has been a a, a large increase in, indivi- in children who are diagnosed with ADD. Obviously that's not, you know, that's not scientific. It just feels as though it's more common to encounter children that have these ADHD diagnosis. Um, and part of, part of me wonders, you know, this is, it, it seems as though attention, especially attention to things that aren't of interest to a child, it seems as though attention needs to be fostered throughout childhood. It's something that, that parents if they ignore it, it will get, it will just sort of spiral out of control. So you have to kind of, you know, set up an environment that encourages your child to pay attention and to engage in activities that they don't want to do. So given that, you know, is, is there a causal connection between the strategies that parents or or the behaviors that parents engage in and the severity of ADHD symptoms? Uh, well, you know, that's been looked into because it, it was decades ago, uh, psychiatry is very, um, very fond of blaming the parent for almost everything. Parents are poor parents, parents did this, parents did that. Turns out it's, it's not the case that the parents of kids with ADHD are bad parents. Um, it's the case that they have a very difficult child and it's, it's very difficult to parent. And in fact, when the child's appropriately treated uh, with current treatments for ADHD, what we find is that the parenting skills get better because now the parents have a more typical child and they're able to actually parent the way the average parent can, can parent. Now that's not to say that parents have no effect on their children, they, they certainly do. Uh, but we even find, for example, that therapies, uh, there was a, a study that was done um, in the United States with several hundred kids and they compared um, medication therapy with parenting therapy, meaning teaching parents to be better parents. Uh, with the with the combined therapy and with with just nothing at all, and what they found was that the essentially the medication had the best effect, and that adding the parent training didn't really help very much for for controlling the ADHD symptoms. And lots of other studies have been done looking at parent training for ADHD symptoms, and it actually is not very useful for reducing symptoms of ADHD. It is useful for reducing symptoms of defiance in kids, oppositionality, 
um, you know, bad boy type behaviors, if you will, bad girl type behaviors, um, but not so much for the actual symptoms of the disorder. So uh, parents out there should, should know that if you have an ADHD kid, they have, it's like any other medical problem. You know, it's there, it's there, it's a problem that it's mostly inherited. Uh, it's not something that you cause. Uh, it's something that you can help by getting them proper treatment and engaging in that treatment as suggested by your provider. But don't blame yourself, your child having ADHD. So I'm going to, I'm going to definitely come back to the ADHD treatment story uh, a little bit later in our conversation. Um, but I, I wanted to stay on this sort of childhood environment topic for a little bit. Um, I wanted your thoughts on the role of, of technology and, and, and how potentially it's overstimulating uh, children. I know that, so if we assume that that children with ADHD, they are capable of attending to things that interest them, right? It's not that mm -hmm. they cannot attend to, it's specifically things that don't interest them that they have trouble regulating, but they can focus on a video game that they really enjoy very, very easily or any activity that draws them in. Um, I start thinking about things like tablets and smartphones and how, you know, is that, is, is the exposure to those highly stimulating things just sort of raising the ceiling such that by exposing them to tablets, that slowly makes everything else less interesting, right? Because in the same way that, you know, high sugar or high fat foods make other foods less palatable, I'm wondering your thoughts on if there's some if there's a role in technology in exacerbating the potential to see ADHD and have impairment. Well, I'll tell you, every time there's a new technology, somebody says, ah, this is causing ADHD and it's, and it's producing more cases of ADHD. And yet when you look at the epidemiologic literature, the prevalence of ADHD hasn't changed over the decades, what, four or five decades since it's been measured. So at least in that time period, changes in technology have not led to a dramatic increase in diagnoses of ADHD. And st studies that have looked at, you know, it used to be TV watching caused ADHD, but that's, you know, that's not true. Uh, I don't think tablets are causing ADHD or smartphones are causing ADHD. You, you are correct, by the, by the way, that, that children with ADHD can better attend to highly rewarding um, stimuli, such as tablets and smartphones and so forth. And so, yes, they're, they're going to gravitate to those like other children, right? They're going to gravitate to those um, kinds of devices. And it does, it does provide a challenge to parents because parents have to kind of move their kids away from the places where they want to always be to attend to those things which are important in the life but aren't as, aren't as rewarding. One of the biggest tasks for a parent with a kid with ADHD to make something that's not very rewarding more rewarding. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about what we know um, are effective treatments for ADHD. So the obviously the the first sort of line of defense I've seen is the stimulant medication. Uh, so m m people listening might might know them as Adderall. Vyvanse is another one. Um, I know that there's a lot of data. Showing the effectiveness of these medications. Mm -hmm. um, however, there is there, there is a very clear narrative that I hear all the time, and it goes like this: I don't want to expose my child to powerful drugs. I want to focus on non-medication alternatives. How do you, how do you address that specific narrative? Well, I'll give you an example of how I addressed it with a specific person who I won't name. Um, it was her, her father called me up and said, hey, I think my grandson has ADHD, but my daughter keeps sending him to all these other kinds of treatments, taking vitamins, doing acupuncture, doing this, doing that, but not, not medication. Um, would you mind talking to her? I said, no, not at all. I'll talk to her. So I, call, I called her up and she, you know, she 
indicated with her concerns about medication. I understand why parents are concerned about that. And I said, look, here's what I suggest. Go to your pediatrician. If you find out first if the pediatrician agrees your son has ADHD, and if so, what the recommended treatment is. My guess is it will be a medication, and it was. You know, I said, if it's a stimulant medication, those are, the effects are sure. You can, you can, your child will experience the effects pretty quickly. So, you know, if you're worried about it, you, don't, you can only take it for one day if you want, or two days, or a week. I'd recommend you try it for at least two or three weeks. Um, but give it at least a week. And then if you don't like it, you can stop. It's not going to be harmful in, in that short, very short time period. And she said, well, I guess that makes sense. Well, she did that. She called me back in a week. She said, oh, my God, I wish I talked to you three years ago because he's a different child now. Of course, he's a different child because he really did have ADHD and he was being treated appropriately. And so I tell parents, if you're worried about the potential adverse effects of the medications, you should start worrying more about the adverse effects of having ADHD because you're not balancing these things, these two things. You're you know, you, the adverse effects you're worried about are actually not so bad. If you look at the look at the FDA insert for ADHD, look at the clinical trials, the the common adverse effects are very mild things like insomnia or loss of appetite. And those are usually pretty well addressed by a competent doctor who can change the medication or change change the dose. On the other hand, the potential adverse consequences of ADHD can be enormous. I had another friend, a guy actually we used to meet at the bus stop and I knew his kid had ADHD because he just, it was very obvious at the bus stop. And um, you know, finally he brought it up to me and I said, I explained to him what he could do in terms of medication and so forth. He wasn't interested. Fast forward, you know, 15 years later, that kid was doing drugs. 20 years later, he was in jail. Uh, that doesn't happen to every child with ADHD, but it is one of the pathways ADHD leads to substance abuse and, and criminality. And we do know from naturalistic studies that that treating kids with medications for ADHD, particularly the stimulants, will reduce those kinds of adverse outcomes. So I say balance, balance the adverse effects of medication with the adverse effects of you know, consigning your life, your child to a life with ADHD. That's very interesting. You know, I also hear, again, these aren't really based in reality, but you hear about this narrative of we're over medicating children, they're over prescribing, over diagnosing. Uh, and, and so it, it seems as though from hearing you talk that this might be overblown. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it is overblown. Um, in many cases, it's not always, but many cases by people who make money by scaring parents about ADHD. They have another, their own little, they have their own approach. They're going to sell you don't take medication, you know, buy my book or buy my therapy or watch, you know, pay for my internet site. Um, and frankly, most of that stuff is BS. Most of it is, un it's, I shouldn't say most of it, it's almost all unproven uh, information that is leading parents astray. I always tell parents, if they think somebody has a better solution, just go to pubmed.gov and see if they've written anything about ADHD. Just type in their name and see if they've written anything that's published in the National Library of Medicine about ADHD. Many of these people have published nothing. Um, you want to see someone who's published, you know, maybe 100 papers at least about ADHD treatment before you say, yes, I'm going to use their treatment. Most of these people never test their treatments, and they don't want to because if they test them, they'll find out that they're not effective. Uh, so sticking with the this discussion on the medication, can you take a little bit of a deep dive into what what this class of what these class of drugs do for the ADHD patient? How does it, you know, what does it do for their brain that that helps? Sure, sure. So there are two big classes of medications. You mentioned the stimulants. Well, there are also the non-stimulants. Uh, the stimulants work by those. This is Adderall, Ritalin, otherwise known as amphetamine or methylphenidate. They work in the brain by blocking the activity of a protein called the dopamine transporter. And by doing that, they improve the transmission of this chemical in the brain called dopamine. And by improving that transmission, uh, they improve the ability of the frontal lobes of the brain to regulate the other parts of the brain. The non-stimulants work primarily, uh, not completely, but primarily on um, in the norepinephrine system. There are actually two different kinds of non-stimulants. Some of them block the norepinephrine transporter which is another protein in the brain. Others work on a receptor called the alpha-2 receptor. Uh, 
And they have this similar effect in working in this, what we call the norepinephrine system or the noradrenergic system. And this system is uh, well known for regulating attention and other aspects of behavior. As a general comment, on average, the stimulants are more effective than the non-stimulants, which is why most people use them first, but many people do very well on a non-stimulant. And so those also need to be considered in a treatment, especially for people who are concerned about the stimulants. Now, so you mentioned dopamine. Uh, I have a particular interest in how that you know, contributes to ADHD and how it relates to pleasure, feeling pleasure in general. So we know that dopamine is this uh, neurochemical that that basically allows us to apply attention in a certain way. It, it, it contributes to our ability to take stimuli from our environment and sort of suppress it so that we can focus on other things. Um, and I've I've seen that it, in in many cases, people with ADHD will often fall into other behaviors that whether within their knowledge or outside of their knowledge, help them achieve this goal in a similar way. So they'd gravitate towards caffeine or maybe even illicit drugs that help. Uh, could you talk <laughs> a little bit about, about behaviors that, that sort of manifest as self-medication, whether it's, you know, drugs or other types of behaviors that they gravitate to, to, to help them? Sure, sure. Function. No, you're right. That that will happen. So, uh, and, well, and there are different drugs help in different ways. So people will go to caffeine for focus. Uh, caffeine itself is not a very good treatment for ADHD, um, but it, you know it, everybody more, more will all be a little bit more alert if we've had some caffeine than we haven't had caffeine. Um, some of the cigarette smoking in ADHD is probably self medication. We do know that nicotine has a positive effect in ADHD symptoms. There's actually been some studies that show that, uh, but it's a modest effect. It's not a not as, as big effect as the medications for ADHD. And in fact, when companies have tried to develop drugs that work in the nicotinic system, they have failed so far. So um, it's, you know, although smoking again, nicotine in cigarettes, for example, or in chewing tobacco, whatever, will give a person more focus. It's not the same as uh, same level of effect as a treatment for ADHD. And then there's the drugs. Uh, you know, People with ADHD tend to, the, the drug of choice for people with ADHD tends to be marijuana. Uh, and that does not improve focus at all. But I think for, for many people with ADHD, it helps them get to sleep, helps them relax. Um, it has that other kind of effect in them, but not so much a, you know, improving their symptoms of, of ADHD. The, yeah. I should just, I just, I do want to just make the point very strongly that, you know, there's no street drug or no supplement that's going to, dramatically help one with ADHD. In the bit that you were just talking about, it got me thinking when you when you first mentioned that ADHD is broadly related to self-regulating. A lot of these, uh, you know, people with ADHD have trouble with what is known as executive functioning. I think some people kind of get a little confused understanding the the impact to cognition and thinking versus the emotional piece. Could you talk a little bit about the the internal experience of people with ADHD and 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 what that's like? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, probably somebody with ADHD could answer it better, but I'll try mm -hmm. to do my right. best on, right. on that. Uh, I guess what I would say is. And right now, you and I are talking on this podcast, and I'm listening to your questions and answering them, and you're hearing my responses and responding appropriately. Now, if we were trying to do this and there was loud music playing in the background, or there was periodic erratic sounds, or somebody all of a sudden lets out a scream, all of a sudden, our ability to concentrate and focus on each other would be impaired in that very unusual environment. For people with ADHD that are very distractible, it's, that's kind of like their environment all the time. They're pulled away from what they're supposed to be doing. Like there's a magnet over there that's making them do look at something else and not attending to what they're supposed to attend to. Um, that's one aspect of the of the experience. It's a kind of this this level of disorganization that they don't always feel as necessarily a problem at the time, but it's only when they reflect on the effects of what they've done that they realize it's caused it's caused them a problem. So. 
I, I, I still have trouble understanding why there is an emotional dysregulation piece to that. Is it, is it the idea that the same executive functioning that is, that allows you to pay attention to different things also is related to a suppressing emotion? A absolutely. Uh, okay. Executive, you know, one of the goals of executive functioning is to regulate behavior, cognition, and emotion. So think about, again, let's, let's compare, uh, think of an example, you're driving a car, you're driving on the highway, and somebody cuts you off on the highway. Well, we all get annoyed with that, right? It really bugs us. We might swear, we might say something to our partner in the car, and we get a little bit upset, but you know, we soothe ourselves, we calm down, we self-regulate, and we continue driving. Some people with ADHD, they, don't, they can't soothe themselves. They can't bring themselves down very quickly. Instead, they get more upset, they get more and more upset, and they might, you know, slam the foot on the gas and chase the person. They might, mm -hmm. you know, make a, you know, they might try to cut the person off and get into it and get into an accident. Uh, the ability to self-soothe is an example of self-regulation that people with ADHD sometimes have a hard time. And I say sometimes because remember, ADHD is very heterogeneous. And so not everybody has every symptom class of the disorder. Okay. And, and, and also I have to point out that uh, in today's, diagnostic manual, emotional dysregulation is not considered to be a symptom of ADHD. It's more of what we say. It's an associated feature. It's common among people with ADHD, but it's not used as, the def as a defining symptom. I personally think that's a mistake, but I, I don't, didn't write the manual. I think that might, that might change in the years to come. So let's talk a little bit about ADHD in adults. Um, is, is there is there anything of note that is sort of fundamentally different from, you know, whether it's experience or treatments, uh, anything worth noting uh, when discussing uh, ADHD sure. in adults? Sure. Well, well, first is that, you know, basically all treatments that work for kids work for adults, uh, which makes sense. Um, there is over time a, uh, a diminution of symptoms, so that the symptoms of ADHD tend to attenuate over time. So an adult will show fewer symptoms, particularly the hyperactive impulsive symptoms. They tend to go away faster than the inattentive symptoms. The adult with the ADHD tends to be more disorganized, more inattentive, and less, frankly, hyperactive. Another problem that adults experience is that there are many adults with ADHD who aren't diagnosed until they, until they become adults. Um, they may have had a history of ADHD, which they need to have to meet the criteria, but they've because they've lived uh, two, maybe three decades or more with ADHD, not only does, a, does their clinician have to treat their ADHD, they have to treat all the problems that were caused by the person not being treated. Because by having a you know three decades of not developing life skills, that's more than ADHD. That's ADHD plus or skill development. And so Interesting. therapies, you know, Psychotherapies, cognitive behavior therapy can be very useful to help uh, the person with ADHD learn some of the life skills uh, they hadn't learned. As we like to say, you know, pills aren't skills. Uh, they can't. They, they don't teach skills. They only provide the ability to self-regulate and the ability to learn better. So, now, are you saying that? So, let's say you have undiagnosed childhood ADHD that could arguably make it very difficult to become an effective social entity. You have trouble socializing and making friends. Maybe that sort of relates to, maybe that eventually causes depression because your social life is, is not as strong as it could be. Um, that's is exactly that, my, is that that's something we see in the literature where you sort of see this, this branching off of, uh, if you if you don't have self-regulation young, you you sort of develop all kinds of other potential issues. Well, first of all, it's it's difficult to separate out the issues that would have developed anyway, because right. we do know there's a biological link between ADHD and depression, for example, uh, ADHD and anxiety. So in some cases, a, per a person with ADHD will develop those disorders uh, because of biology alone. But there's no question in my mind that you consider the course of untreated ADHD, the low self-esteem, the effects it has on a person's social life, the effects it has on their ability to achieve in school, later on at work, that's going to lead to a 
successive demoralization that's going to have a huge impact on them, uh, on the way they feel about themselves and the way they feel about the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, this is the reason why parents have to, you know, and they think, oh, the risks of treatment, you know, these risks of not treatment are pretty, are, are very strong. I've also seen in uh, social media a little bit, there's a lot more self-diagnosis going on than there was probably 20 years yeah. ago with this, lots of so social media influencers and ADHD is just, just a flat out a hot topic on social media. Um, are you, I, I'm obviously, I, I don't expect you to be keenly aware of the trends in, in social media, but I am curious if there are, if there are conditions that by default people think are ADHD, but in reality, there's something else. So for example, maybe, maybe, uh, specifically in adults, they, they, they feel like they have ADHD, they self-diagnose as ADHD, but maybe they just have depression because we know that depression would pr also probably make it hard to focus on unimportant right. stimuli, right? Absolutely. Um, That's right. Do you, what are the, what are the big, big conditions that could potentially in adults be misdiagnosed or, or improperly self-diagnosed as ADHD? Well, I'm glad you made that distinction. So it's uh, a competent clinician would never make this misdiagnosis because the, right. the diagnostic criteria are actually very different. But you're absolutely right. Someone looks at social media, somebody with ADHD talking about their ADHD, and they'll say, oh, you know, I've been depressed for years, and I, I have gender dysphoria, and fill in the blank. They say something else. The person's like, well, I have gender dysphoria. I'm depressed. I must have ADHD. Now, that's not unreasonable to think if you're the average person, but it happens to be totally wrong. It doesn't mean you have ADHD. It just means you happen to be depressed and have gender dysphoria. Um, I would say to people who are self-diagnosing themselves, if you think you have ADHD, go talk to your doctor about it. Talk to somebody who is a licensed professional who can give you the answer and give you the most appropriate treatment. And if they tell you it's not ADHD, then maybe you should consider that you do have another problem. Mm -hmm. Now, I say that with one little caveat, and that is that there are some practitioners who don't know how to diagnose ADHD properly. And that's a conundrum, for unfortunately, for patients. Uh, I've heard things on, I do some Ask Me Anything sessions on Reddit, where I get questions from Redditors about ADHD, uh, and they talk about their experiences. And sadly, sometimes it's clear to me that they have a doctor or a psychologist that's not really competent diagnosis. And so I also say to people, if you think that your doctor's not doing a good job, go to somebody else, because maybe you know they might be making a mistake as well. Mm -hmm. I've seen a little bit about sex differences in terms of the symptoms of ADHD. Is there anything to that? Uh, there is. Uh, the biggest difference is that uh, boys in general tend to be more hyperactive, disruptive, impulsive than girls. So the average ADHD boy causes problems for someone else, teacher or a parent. That means they're more likely to be sent for treatment. So we do. we know, for example, that in in, in referrals to clinics, boys outnumber girls like nine to one. It's also true if you look, if you go out to the population and you actually do a research study and you measure ADHD in boys and girls, it's a little more common in boys. It's more like three to one instead of nine to one. But that, what happens with that, the over-referral of boys is that many girls are missed early in the course of their ADHD. Sometimes many of them are missed until adulthood. And what changes in adulthood? Well, in adulthood, it's not the parent or the teacher that sends you to the doctor. You send yourself to the doctor. And so many young women start to realize they're having troubles in life and they learn a little bit about ADHD. They go to, for, you know, to get a diagnosis and indeed they, they do have ADHD. So what we find is that in, in adulthood, the male-female ratio tends to uh, become more one-to-one. -one. That's uh, because females are referring themselves more to doctors. Now. Let's wrap up by talking about some of the non-medication-related -medic treatments. Um, I, I imagine that there are some behavioral strategies that you could apply, whether it's for, well, let's, we can differentiate between children and adults, but um, I've, I've come across some content that suggests, for example, that because people with ADHD have trouble doing things that they don't like to do, you have to outsource the 
um, the motivation, you, you know, through incentives or something like that. Um, could you, that, that, as yeah, we wrap right. up, could, yeah, could you talk yeah, that, about some of these strategies? Sure, uh, sure. So look, broadly? I, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, I was trained as a behavioral psychologist, and I know that behavior therapy has can be very helpful to parents and children. No question about it. And for adults, cognitive behavior therapy can be very useful. In fact, when treating adults, those with who are given cognitive behavior therapy plus medication do better than those without medication. Adding it on is useful. Uh, now, the same thing is true for children. And the point I was making before is that the training parents to be better parents doesn't do a, a lot for the, for the core symptoms of ADHD, but it helps some of the associated problems. And that's why you use it. So what I typically recommend is you, know, you see a doctor, if your doctor think it's, thinks it's appropriate, get on an appropriate medication regime, do that until the, those symptoms are under control. At that point, you see how things are. In some cases, everything's fine and you don't need anything else. But in many cases, there are still problems. And then you figure out what's the best non-medical treatment that can you can add on to it to help with those remaining problems. But the reason why I suggest that people try the medication first is that then you can see what you need to target with the non with the with the psychosocial treatment. I think it's a more effective approach. So you said a you said medication appropriate. A, a, a clinician will determine if a medication is appropriate. What what is going into that process to determine? So let's assume that there's a proper ADHD diagnosis, because obviously you mentioned that yes. there can be <laughs> you know issues right, there. Right. But if you assume a proper ADHD diagnosis, what what is a clinician going to evaluate to determine if if medication is the approach? So, um, well, one thing they'll look at is, is the age of the child. So, for example, the um, the guidance from the American Academy of Pediatricians indicates that one should try a course of behavior therapy before using medication in very young children, preschool children, essentially. Um, so that's one issue. How how how? What's the age of the child? Is uh, the severity level of the ADHD might play a role? In some cases, the clinician will say, "Well, child has ADHD. It's not that severe. Let's try parenting therapy there first. See if that is useful." Um, those types of considerations come in for now for adults. It's a little bit different. If uh, uh, or teenagers too, if a, a clinician is is concerned that maybe this child might divert misuse or abuse a medication, then they might say, well, maybe I'm better off, you know, not using a stimulant medication, but using a non-stimulant medication. Um, so there are some reasons why, and of course, there's also medical checkup, right? So you're not supposed to give uh, some of the ADHD medications for kids that have pre-existing cardiac problems. So medical checkup has to clear the child for uh, the ADHD medication first as well. Okay. So back to the behavioral interventions what are what are a, a couple different behavioral intervention specific behavioral interventions that uh, might be beneficial to children or adults well for adults it's very clear cognitive behavior therapy is the only really evidence-based treatment that works well oh i see I, I see i was so i was thinking more okay so so cognitive behavioral therapy would be the first that you would mention. How about sort of um, strategies at home, whether it's, you know, putting notes on things or, uh, you know, uh, that's what is... actually all, that's all part of cognitive behavior. So cognitive behavior uh, therapy okay. is I see teaching, teaching self-regulation skills. And sometimes these are very concrete skills, like how to use a smartphone to keep yourself organized. Uh, absolutely. So strategies, these become very important for people with ADHD too. When you've identified where are the, well, number one, what skills haven't they learned because of their ADHD uh, and what problems remain after they've been treated medically, then you, you, it's, you, you give them these helpful hints, if you will, that are tailored to their life so they can improve their ability to self-regulate in these various domains. Mm -hmm. Are there any... Um, so I'm very interested in these, these tiny strategies that would fall under cognitive behavioral therapy. Are there any, uh, is, are there anything that we know is, is sort of a waste of time 
something that, you know, has been tried, but it's like, you know, well, we don't really see that that uh, post-it notes on the refrigerator are helpful. Um, you know, I, I don't I'm, I'm not really sure how deep the research goes into these uh, behavioral strategies. Yeah, you know, that's something I don't have the answer to right there. Well, there's a lot of research in behavioral strategies. Um, if you you ought to invite Mary Salento to give a talk about to talk to her about cognitive behavior therapy. She's wrote a book on it, so she could tell you a lot about that uh, for adults. Uh, someone like Mark Stein would be great for uh, talking about these kinds of strategies for for kids. But the main point is that yes, you can teach strategies. These are really important, but don't they're, they're not going to help your child if you haven't haven't been appropriate treat, appropriately treated medically first. Um, since they're not going to help, they're not going to help them as, as much unless you know, maybe it's a mild case of ADHD. But um, again, don't be, don't be afraid of treatment, balance risks and benefits of both treatment and non-treatment when you think about that. That's a very strong message. Well, uh, that, that does it for us today. Uh, thank you. Uh, so much for being on. It was an absolute pleasure. Hopefully both parents and adults with ADHD have, um, have gained some new perspective on this condition. Uh, thank you so much for being on Dr. Stephen Ferrone. And thank you for educating the world about ADHD. And I encourage listeners to visit me at ADHDevidence.org. On Stephen and his ADHD work, visit ADHDevidence.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or X, formerly known as Twitter, at WDWDTPod. As always, Feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>